And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 20. We have been, over the past four weeks, been looking at resurrection encounters. That is, what took place in that 40-day period when Jesus was raised from the dead until Jesus ascended into heaven. Right? There's a 40-day period in there. And during that period of time, we're seeing a lot of interesting things happen. Uh, we're exploring who Jesus interacted with. Uh, we're looking at different, making different observations about what took place during that 40-day period. Because ultimately, what confidence can we have in our faith if we don't see Jesus as resurrected? Right? If Jesus is if there are the bones of Jesus of Nazareth hidden somewhere in the nation of Israel right now, Paul says that everybody in the world should feel really sorry for us. That we are to be most pitied above all people. That if there is a, a set of bones that belong to Jesus Christ of Nazareth right now in a tomb somewhere that was hidden away by His disciples and everybody got together and said, let's just lie about the fact that we saw Jesus come back to life and let's all lie about that. Um, if that's the case, then we are some of the most foolish people in the world. But if Jesus has risen from the dead, and if He is alive today, then we understand that we have been given one of the most greatest treasures on earth. And that is the new life that Jesus promised. That means that everything that Jesus says is real and is true and that we can hang on every word and that our lives spent serving Him is not in vain. And not just our life, but, but the lives of these people. So it's important to us to understand what took place during this 40 day period because indeed our faith hangs on this one event that Jesus Christ is alive today and many people in this room believe that uh, but there are also recognized there are as many as 20 to 30 percent of this room the people who are hearing this message right now that don't believe that at all that are here sort of asking if this is true or not that they're in this exploratory phase wondering if this is true or not. And if it is true, what difference does it make in my life? Well, as we've examined these 40-day period and the, the resurrection encounters that people have had with Jesus, we've already observed a couple of things. The eyewitnesses to Jesus were convinced enough that they were willing to die torturous deaths. Uh, they were willing to die extremely painful deaths. You remember the story of Peter who died several decades later. All he had to do was deny that Jesus was alive. And Peter said, not only will I not deny it, but you can crucify me. They said, we will crucify you. And he said, crucify me upside down because I don't deserve to die in the same way Jesus died. And so he was willing to give his life in one of the most brutal fashions based on the fact that he believed Jesus was indeed alive. You think about John, uh, who died sometime in the uh, after 90, so 60 years after Jesus' life and ministry. He was in prison on the island of Patmos and died there in incarceration, willing to believe, willing to die for the fact that Jesus is indeed alive. These disciples, 
maintain this belief that Jesus is alive. If you've ever read or heard about Watergate and the, uh, the Nixon scandal, uh, you'll probably remember the story of a man named Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was uh, part of the legal counsel and, and the team of, uh, of people that were on uh, Nixon's uh, team, and he was intimately involved in that Watergate scandal. Uh, he describes over a period of weeks the unraveling of that lie. He said that in order to protect this president, we all gathered together to stand for a lie. And that under intense scrutiny and intense media attention and under investigation of the FBI and all that, it only took a matter of weeks for that lie to be cracked. It's impossible for a large group of people to maintain a lie under intense scrutiny. These disciples under the most intense scrutiny of the Roman Empire and the threat of crucifixion, maintained their firm belief that Jesus was alive. And not just this small group of disciples, but Jesus was appearing to more and more and more people. Up to 500 people at one time saw and experienced Him. And so the Jesus encounters increased throughout the book of Acts and throughout the church period. Indeed, up until this time right now, people are still having encounters with a living Jesus. And I gladly raise my hand and can tell you that as a former atheist, someone who didn't even believe in God, had an experience with Jesus Christ. And that has changed the course of my life over these years. That's a conclusion that we've drawn, that these eyewitnesses were convinced enough that they believed Jesus was alive. We also are in that group. Uh, We can also draw this conclusion. There's something unusual about this 40-day period. Jesus didn't look like himself. He just didn't he, he didn't look like himself. There's a number of times when people just didn't recognize him, that people just saw him and they, they thought, uh, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him until he broke bread hours after they had been with him. Uh, Mary in this passage thinks he's a gardener. Uh, Peter on the uh, shores of the, the Sea of Galilee a few weeks ago, we preached about that. They didn't know who he was. There was something unrecognizable about Jesus Thomas said, it's until I put my fingers in his scars, what we talked about last week about how to handle doubts. Thomas didn't recognize him until he put his finger. There's something unrecognizable about Jesus, and it's a mystery that we may not ever understand. But there is a sense in which maybe that the pre-incarnate Christ, those Christophanies, the angel of the Lord that took place all throughout the Old Testament, that Jesus resembled more of that pre-incarnate Christ and the resurrection than he did than the embodied Jesus who shared the DNA of Mary, his mother. That's, that's beyond me to understand today. And I'm not telling you that's fact. I'm saying that there is a possibility that that's true. But there is a, undeniable this idea that Jesus looked different. They didn't recognize him. And so we want to get to the bottom of all that during this time. So today we're going to examine the very first appearance that Jesus makes. His first grave appearance. Uh, Out of the grave, who does he appear to first? It's a woman named Mary Magdalene. And you probably know a little bit about Mary Magdalene. Uh, She has 12 
times in the Bible her name is mentioned, um, she is almost always mentioned in close proximity to Jesus. Uh, In Luke 8, she's next to Jesus. She's one of the women who provide for his needs. Um, In Mark, uh, Matthew, and John, she is at the crucifixion on Friday. She's right there with him till the very end. She's with Joseph of Arimathea who goes to Pilate, requests the body. She's with him at the preparation for Jesus' burial. She goes to the tomb and is a part of that burial process. She is also at the resurrection. We see Mary Magdalene always in very close proximity to Jesus. Her name wasn't Magdalene. Her last name wasn't Magdalene. There were just a bunch of Marys that hung around with Jesus. And to distinguish them, they all took different names. She was from Magdala. It's just a part of the western shore of Israel. So she was not that Mary, the Magdalene Mary. That's how they would have known her. That was, this is Mary, and this is Mary, and that's Mary. This is, no, I mean the Mary from Magdala, right? Um, if you ever, I don't know if you name your kids similar names, um, or if they all start with the same name. If, if, if it's hard to keep track of names in sort of those close groups unless you have an identifier. Uh, Thomas called the twin is what we looked at. Um, John and James, the sons of thunder. All of them had these designations. Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't his last name. Uh, maybe news to some of you. His name wasn't Christ. Christ is a title. Christos. Um, Hamashiach was the, the Hebrew word. It's the Messiah. So Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. That was a title, not his name. So it was a designation of who he was. But uh, you got me off track, so um, (laughs) let me get back on point here. Today we're examining this first appearance to a woman named Mary Magdalene. And I want to ask on the front end, has your past ever come back to haunt you? Have you ever messed up in your past and someone today holds that over your head? Ah, well, you, you did this back then. Or this is who you are based on who you once were. Mary Magdalene had a past. And there's something amazing about the fact that Jesus chose to reveal Himself to this woman. Something that shows us the incredible forgiveness and grace of God. Something that shows us that Jesus is willing to extend grace and dignity and a clean slate and a new start and an important role in His kingdom. Not based on the past, but based on who you are in Christ Jesus. I love that Dave Bender stood up here and said, I am a child of God. He didn't say what he was. He said what he is, right? Mary is someone totally different than who she used to be. So I want you to see this morning that Jesus gives great honor to those who believe. And he raised past and a new present and a new identity in Christ Jesus regardless of their former way of life. So let's, let's read this passage together. It's John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. And I'm going to make some comments along the way as we read. Verse 11 says, But Mary stood outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now just pause here. Let's reset the scene. Very early in the morning, while it's still dark, Mary Magdalene and a couple of the other women go to the tomb. Once they get to the tomb, they find that the stone has been rolled away. 
Uh, in the account of Matthew, an angel is sitting on that stone and he says, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's risen. Now go tell his disciples. These women abandon their materials and they go back. Now we know they were staying in Bethany. So they run the two miles or walk or jog or whatever they did. They, they went the two miles. They found the disciples and they told them that the tomb was empty. Who runs to the tomb after they tell them? Peter and John. That's right. It's Peter and John. And who gets there first? John. He's quicker. I don't know if he's, he's just quicker. He's, he beats Peter there. But once John gets there, we know that he doesn't go into the tomb. Because Peter comes after him and it says Peter then goes into the tomb and he finds what? He finds the grave clothes bundled up at the feet. He finds the linen shroud that covered Jesus' face folded neatly at the head. Peter and John are there looking and they don't see Jesus. They leave and go back home or go back to wherever they're staying. Then we get, as best as we can piece together the timeline, Mary comes back. Maybe some of the other women are with her, but Mary of Magdala, she comes back. And, and I don't know if anybody else is with her at all, but this is after all that has happened, and she's going to hang around the tomb by herself. While she's there by herself, we pick up in verse 11, she is standing there weeping outside of the tomb. And as she weeps, she stoops to look into the tomb and she sees two angels in white, verse 12, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, when was the last time you saw two angels, right? Anywhere? Anybody? Probably none of us. Mary is not at all deterred from seeking Jesus by the sight of these two angels. People have been looking in this tomb all morning. These two angels are sitting on the bench where they would lay the body. It would decompose naturally for a year. They would come back and they would place the bones in an ossuary or a box a year or so later. Put those bones in the corner. No one has ever been laid in this tomb. It's Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy guy. It's his tomb. And he, it's the first time anybody's been there. Jesus is on the bench that was built into that tomb. And on the other side of the tomb, there would have been a box, a place for boxes. Jesus never gets the chance to decompose. These two angels are there waiting for Mary when she stoops in and looks. They ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Jesus is also going to ask her, why are you weeping? The text has told us, in verse 11, that Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. It tells us that while she wept, she stooped into the tomb. Do you have a picture of what Mary's doing? And she's crying her eyes out. She's crying her eyes out. And John, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, it says, Jesus what? Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. This term is a description of exactly what you think it is. Crying your eyes out. Mary is crying her eyes out. She's incredibly touched by the fact that she can't see Jesus. She's amazingly touched by the fact that she can't see Him. She can't find Him. Two angels sitting in white don't keep her from crying. There's not a momentary lapse of tears because of her grief for Jesus. 
She says to them in verse 13, they have taken away my kurios, my Lord, my master. This is a slave term. They've taken away my master. They took away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Mary doesn't believe that Jesus is alive at this point. She doesn't believe he's alive. She thinks somebody took him. So she's not yet believing, despite the angel that appeared to her at first, he's alive, he's risen. Go tell the disciples he's risen. She goes to tell the disciples he's risen. She comes back and she finds out that Jesus, she doesn't believe that Jesus has been raised. She thinks that somebody took him. Having said this, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But here's our key mystery. She did not know that it was Jesus. His presence, his appearance, something about him. It was not immediately recognizable to anybody who saw Jesus after the resurrection that this is indeed Jesus. Jesus said to her, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Have you ever read the Gospels and see that Jesus Sometimes asks bizarre questions, right? Right? At the sheep pool, uh, he asks the invalid who has been an invalid for 38 years, do you want to get well? It's a guy who's in this condition. Jesus asks bizarre questions and he has a way of doing it. I'm just speculating. But I often wonder if Jesus wants someone to articulate faith or belief or confidence. He wants them to search themselves and give a response. And so he wants her to say, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And we'll get to that more about that in a few minutes. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Mary Magdalene wants Jesus's body. She's there seeking his body. She wants his physical body to prepare it, to honor it, to put the spices on it, to wrap it, to put him back in the grave for his burial. She still does not believe that Jesus is alive. And this is unusual. She's already been told by an angel that he's alive. Jesus himself told all the disciples he would be alive. He's going to rebuke them later on that day because they're slow to believe. He's going to tell the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, maybe in a few minutes after he leaves Mary, he's going to go to Emmaus, he's going to hop on that road, he's going to catch up to those two disciples, and he's going to chastise them for being slow to believe. But we don't see any of that here with Mary. Jesus simply says to her in verse 16, Mary, Mary, there's something about his voice. There's something about his voice and the way he calls this, that she recognizes who this is. And she says in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, which may have been a word that she used um, in her relationship with him. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, which gives us the picture that she's wrapped herself around him. In another gospel, we hear that the women in Matthew's account, they've, they've grabbed his feet. Dads, have you ever had your kids hang on to your feet and you try to walk around dragging these kids around? I get the impression that Mary, once she heard the name Mary and she recognizes Jesus, 
she probably dives at his feet and she is clinging to him or to his leg or maybe she's hugging him. But in some way, she has attached herself to Jesus. And all of her worries have gone away. Jesus says, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. What does he mean by that? I've not yet ascended. I haven't gone up yet. He's, he's saying, you have some time, right? You have some time. Don't cling to me right now. There's still a period of time before I go back to the Father. You don't have to wrap onto me right now and hold me. I'm not leaving anytime soon. There's still a period of time here before I ascend to the Father. And it's amazing. I can't get into it this morning, but Jesus has told his disciples already, it's a good thing that I'm leaving you. And they're like, what do you mean it's a good thing? You're going to be, you're going to benefit when I ascend. Once I'm gone, it's going to be better for you because then I'm going to send what? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to, he's going to be my presence in you all the time, everywhere. There won't be any need for you to physically cling to me any longer. You're going to have me within you at all times through the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is reminding her of this. And he says, I am ascending. Go to my brothers now and tell them I am ascending to the Father and to your Father, to my God and your God, letting her know that she is within this family. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Now, I just really want to make three observation application points in light of what we just read. A lot of things I could say, but just three things. Number one, your past life doesn't define your present in the kingdom. We learn from Luke and we learn from Mark 16 that Mary had seven demons in her when she met Jesus. What does that even look like? What does a person with one demon look like? Well, maybe two, maybe three. In, 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 uh, in another passage, Jesus describes this demonic activity. He says when a person cleanses their house of this demonic presence and they don't immediately fill it with something greater, speaking of himself, if they just clean their act up and they remove this presence of evil in their life, it says, he says, Jesus says that that spirit will go and find seven more demons more wicked than itself and they will go to that clean house and invade it. And the last condition of that person will be worse than the first. All throughout the Gospels, we see this unusual spiritual war that is taking place in and around the time of Israel and around the time of Jesus. There's an unusual heightened spiritual battle that is raging all around. And we see all of these demon-possessed people coming to Jesus and experiencing deliverance. And all these people are now bringing all these demon-possessed people. We don't understand demon possession in our culture today. This is a mystery to us. And spiritually, biblically, I think it's meant to be a mystery. I think we get into a lot of trouble if you name the demon of something and you're confident that there's some sort of demonic presence in someone or something. I think that all that is beyond our knowledge on purpose. And I think that you get into a lot of trouble when you begin chasing demons and you begin speculating about someone else's condition. 
This is just something that we don't understand. And if someone tells you they have a deep knowledge of these things, you should just quietly, slowly back away, right? Just get away from them because they probably don't know what they're talking about. We're not meant to understand this whole realm. We are meant to cling to Jesus. We are meant to cling to Jesus. I don't know what seven demons looks like in Mary Magdalene, but I do know we can draw some conclusions there are a variety of demonic expressions in the, in the Bible. It's all destructive and deceptive. And so if you see the presence of demonic activity, you can assume that it's destructive and that it's deceptive. Satan is called the father of lies. And so his horde of demonic activity, they speak that same language. And so if, if there is the presence of deception or if there is the presence of destruction, you can assume demonic activity and influence is involved. Mary was delivered from seven of these demons. Not the kind of girl that you're, uh, you're thinking would make uh, you know, dating material. Or you know, not who you're imagining for your son to marry. Um, but Jesus extends great compassion on this woman. He extends incredible mercy and forgives her and delivers her from this. And from that point forward, Mary is given a place of honor. Her name, we're talking about her today. 2,000 years after the lady lived, we don't have any idea of anything other than the fact that she was this person before, and then now she is one of the most honored saints in the Gospels. Your past doesn't hinder your present in the kingdom of God if you believe in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy people, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of those people will enter the kingdom of God. Not greedy people, not drunk people, not thieves, not sexually immoral, not idolaters, adulterers, homosexuality, any of those things, anybody whose life is defined by those characteristics outside of Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. What does that tell you? The Corinthian church, man. I mean, it was as messed up maybe as this church or our church or our, any church really, right? Such were some of you. You were included in that list somewhere. <laughs> I mean, those are one of the sins that defined you before Christ. But Paul makes a point to say, such were some of you, but now you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, Jesus completely removes the stain of sin in your life, giving honor and dignity and purpose for those who previously had none because of their sinful past. You're not defined by your past sin behavior. You are a child of God. You were washed. You were made new. Such were some of you. If you're in Christ, you are not who you were. Mary doesn't introduce herself as Mary Magdalene, 
home the seven demons. That's not who she is. That's who she was. Your past does not define you. Second thing. Mary has an amazing way of placing herself in the most likely positions where she will experience Jesus Christ. Have you noticed how she puts herself in the right path? She puts herself in the right path. She is always described as being near to Jesus. Earlier in Luke, she's described as one of the women who follow him. Along with all the disciples, there's a number of women. Mary, um, Clopas, uh, the wife, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who was the, Herod's household manager, is his wife. Uh, other women, and Mary Magdalene, from whom he Remove seven demons. Mary is always close to Jesus. She's at the crucifixion. When the disciples flee, she stays. When no one else is around, but Mary, Jesus' mother, John, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Mary uh, is right there with him. She is right there with him. She's at the burial. She's at the resurrection. She's back at the tomb after all that activity. She puts herself in a position to experience Jesus. Do you put yourself in a position to experience Jesus. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Uh, knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. Uh, in Luke 2, we read about Simeon and Anna waiting in the temple for the Messiah. We read in Luke 19, 1-10 about Zacchaeus who sees Jesus coming and he does the geometry or whatever math to put himself in the path of where Jesus is going to be. Uh, and he puts himself in the tree so that when Jesus passes, he's going to be right there with him. Uh, we think about Andrew. Um, when the Greeks come to Philip and say, we wish to see Jesus, they uh, come to Andrew. Andrew takes them to Jesus. You think about Exodus 33. Moses used to take a tent and he would place it called the tent of meeting. And there he would go to meet with God on a daily basis. And the end of Exodus 33, 7 through 14, that passage says, Joshua, son of Nun, what? He never left that tent. He never left it. He put himself in a position to experience Jesus. What does it mean for you to seek Jesus? To put yourself in a path to experience Jesus. Does it mean showing up here at church every Sunday? Yeah, it means that. It, it means that. It means you're placing yourself in a position where two or three are gathered in His name. Jesus says, there I will be in their midst. So in your physical presence here today, you are physically saying something. I want to experience Jesus. Does it mean that? Absolutely it means that. It also means uh, showing up to a small group Bible study. Absolutely. If you're in a place where believers are gathered for prayer, for the breaking of the word, to honor Jesus Christ, you are physically with your body saying, I want to experience the presence of Jesus. When you choose to not attend worship of Jesus and to do some other activity on a Sunday or on a small group night, you are choosing subliminally, Consciously or unconsciously, you are choosing to say, I don't wish to experience Jesus in a place where he regularly works and walks and is active. You are removing yourself from that opportunity. And I'm not meaning to make anybody feel bad about that. I'm just saying the fact is Mary put herself in a position. The great saints who experienced Jesus do so because they put themselves 
regularly in a position to experience Jesus. But most importantly, it doesn't mean this room and it doesn't mean a small group as much as it means this. It means the daily present presentation of yourself before God. Think of Romans 12, 1 through 2. Your spiritual act of worship is daily presenting yourself to Jesus. It's daily saying, here I am. This is my condition. Under temptation, but here I am. Discouraged, and yet here I am today, Jesus. Not feeling it today, but Jesus, here I am. That's what it means, the daily presentation in your condition for which He will say, I receive you as you are. Come and spend time with me and let's, let's, let's just fellowship together and abiding in one another. It's that daily re- relational value of placing yourself in the most likely path to experience Jesus. The third observation is this. Mary <clears throat> went seeking Jesus. She went to find Him. He's standing right there. <laughs> she didn't even recognize Him. She was all around his proximity and, and still didn't know him until he called her name. Until he called her name. She sought him. She was there with him. She didn't even really recognize him. There is a sense in which people can fall in love with a culture and not love Jesus at all. There is a sense in which you can love this environment, these pews, the songs, the routine, the fellowship, there's a sense in which you can love all of those things. And if Jesus never showed up or were never present here, nothing would would really change for you. There's a sense in which you can change something about that culture, the place, the songs, the pews, the time, the people. You can change some of those things Change all those things and add Jesus and you will find people saying, what happened to the songs I used to sing and the pew I used to sit in and the things I used to do? There is a real sense in which you can be all around the stuff of Jesus and Jesus cannot be there. He could be far away and you can love that thing and not love Jesus, not recognize Jesus. Jesus can call you out of that. Mary recognizes him when when he calls her name, but it's not until he calls her name, calls her from something and asks her those questions. What are you seeking? Why are you weeping? Are you weeping over the loss of your our fellowship group that we had for these years? Are Are you sad about the loss of something or are you seeking someone? Are you seeking something or are you seeking someone? Here's a key question to know if this is tapping into who you are. If there's a sense in which you can love a culture, but not Jesus. Uh, If you could go to heaven today and you could see all your loved ones, you could see all your family members, you could see all your closest friends. It could be paradise. It could be for me, you know, 65 degrees with uh, golf courses everywhere and just angelic wings. And I was always, you know, birdie again, eagle again. I'm always doing like amazing, you know, it's all day long. If this was paradise for me, if I could go to heaven and and experience just family reunions and paradise and peace and happiness and joy and friends and family. And listen, the only thing missing from that picture is Jesus Christ, 
the lamb who is slaughtered, the lamb who is uncomfortably still got wounds in his hands. And all that was missing from my picture of heaven is Jesus and the the active singing of worship songs to him. Would I still want to go? Would you go to heaven if there was nothing of what you hoped for, but only the worship of the slain Messiah? Would you cling to that Jesus and forsake everything else? There's a sense in which you can love everything about a church or a culture or a way you grew up and, and, and have nothing at all to do with Jesus that in the end will show that you may not ever have known Jesus. I heard an amazing story this week and, and, and she can say it better than I can. And so I want to ask Cherie to come up and I've asked her just to share a little bit of her story. Uh, and so... Cherie and I were talking about, if you don't know, this is Cherie Leatherman. Uh, Cherie is our women's ministry director. She teaches our women's Bible study. She works here uh, as the administrator. And as we were going over this note, come on up here on the stage. It's okay. Uh, (laughs) I'm okay. I'm excited, but I'm not going to hurt anybody. Um, As we were talking about this, Cherie came up with this great observation, this last observation. What, what was it about this? Tell me, tell me how this has meaning to you um, in the way you grew up. Um, so I grew up in the church culture from the time I was born. So I have never not been in church. Um, my parents uh, were missionaries. My grandfather was a pastor. And so I know the church culture. It's all I've known. Um, so when I saw this passage, one of the things that jumped out to me was she was in the presence of Jesus and she didn't recognize him. And I saw like, that was me. I had been in the presence of Jesus my entire life and I didn't know him. I didn't know him. And so it was through, um, it was in 2010, um, I was sitting in church as was my normal habit. That's what we do. So, so. From how old were you in church? Zero. Okay, so from zero to 2010. I'm not going to tell your age or anything. I'm, I know I, I know enough not to do that. I'm but from the time you were a child to the time, this time period, 2010, a long period of time, mm-hmm. hearing regular sermons, singing worship songs, mm-hmm. you were not a believer. I, I prayed the prayer. Every day of my life, I prayed the prayer, the sinner's prayer, and I, but I, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I knew about Jesus. I knew the gospel. I could give you the gospel. I could tell it to you. I, I could answer every biblical question that you probably threw at me, but I didn't know him. So what happened in 2010? Um, I was sitting in church, and the pastor was preaching. I had no idea what we were pre- he was preaching on, and um, we were. He, but he made the statement that you made about if you could have heaven with all of your family, with all of your friends, with no threat of war or disease or um, illness. And I was picturing the beach because that's like my happy place, you know. If you could have all of these things, and Jesus were not there. Would you be happy? Could you be content with heaven without Jesus? And I was not expecting this, and I, at the risk of sounding a little dramatic, I felt a pierce in my soul that went as deep as I, it just pierced me. And it 
took my breath away because I knew the answer was, yeah. Yeah, I could. I could have. I could be happy in heaven without Jesus. And that was the moment that I realized what I was truly worshiping. It was those things. And it wasn't Jesus. I didn't love Jesus. I was dead in my heart to him. And I was, in some ways, using my Christianity and, and this culture in order to get the things that I truly loved. So Jesus was a means to an end and not who I loved or worshipped. Well, thank you for sharing. Give Sharia a hand. That's not an easy thing to come up here. I know that there are, that, that this rings true in churches all over. Because as soon as you tinker with what they love, there's not a sense of adaptability. Uh, if you can't go into another culture and worship Jesus, I've, I've had the opportunity to worship in worship services on five different continents among people who don't look like me at all. And the very fact that we're worshiping Jesus made me feel right at home. But the second in which you tinker with someone's culture and they realize, I don't know that I love Jesus. I, I know that I love what we used to do and the way we used to do it. There's a sense in which you can be all around Jesus and ne never really know Him. So I wonder this morning if, if in some way, just like Cherie, he might be calling your name. And I don't, I'm not pressing you to walk forward and cry and say a prayer. What, I, what I'm asking you to do is to evaluate what heaven looks like for you. And to really wrestle with that question, if Jesus were absent and it was everything I hoped for minus Jesus... Is it possible that I'm not yet a Christ follower? If you pray the sinner's prayer every day because you doubted it worked yesterday, is that faith? I think that's the definition of doubt. And so there has to be a point in which you recognize and can answer the question, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And if the answer to that is not, I'm seeking Jesus and Him alone, Allow the Holy Spirit to reveal where you are spiritually. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that in Christ there is dignity and honor and grace for the worst of sinners. That You can extend incredible mercy to a lady like Mary Magdalene. We thank You, Lord, for the grace and mercy and the new life that comes from being in Christ. We also thank You for the example that she sets as someone who regularly puts herself in the path so that she can encounter you on a regular basis. She's always listed in close proximity to you, clinging to you. May we cling to you. But may you also reveal to us the condition of where we stand. Whether we love a culture, whether we love a religious habit, or whether we deeply love you. I pray that you would do your work among us so that we may know so that we may know you, so that we may walk with you and be pleasing in your sight. Would you come near and be among us as we sing together? In Jesus' name, amen.